Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Pittsburgh Anti-Imperialist League podcast. As an introduction, my name is Nick, and I'm a member of the League. The Pittsburgh Anti-Imperialist League, or PALE, is a coalition of Pittsburgh-based activists and organizations dedicated to combating U.S. imperialism right here in the Steel City. In our view, education and exposure to dissident voices is a key weapon in the arsenal of people fighting against the hegemonic narratives put forward by the ruling class, which of course only serve the U.S. empire's agenda. As such, one of the main outputs of this organization will be the hosting of regular in-person discussions and orientations on topics and events, both current and historical. This podcast will serve as a companion and additional resource to these events. On this first episode, we'll be speaking with Daniel Kavalik, who we are happy to also call a member of the League. Dan teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and is also the author of multiple books, including No More War and the recently released Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan actually recently returned from Russia and the Donbass and is here to discuss the origins of the conflict in Ukraine, the implications of this conflict for the rest of the world, and how this conflict can be resolved. This episode will serve as the companion to Dan's March 11th talk titled, The Ukraine Conflict, How We Got Here and Where We're Going. So, Dan, it's great to have you. How are you doing tonight? Good, Nick. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're definitely excited to uh, reboot Pale here and uh, for this first event that's upcoming here. I'm not sure what, quite when this podcast will come out, but either way, it'll be out there for folks to listen to if they can't make it to the event. So, just to start off, I think it would be good if you could just give us kind of an overview of the history that led up to this conflict that's ongoing in Ukraine right now, and in particular emphasize what the U.S.'s role has been in bringing us to this point. Yeah, well, we could start many places. I think one place to start is the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which I agree with the sentiment that it, that was the most catastrophic event of the 20th century. And Russia felt at that point that the West would welcome Russia into the West. You know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, after communism fell, Russia had been promised, Gorbachev had been promised by the United States, by Secretary of State James Baker, that if he allowed the Berlin Wall to come down, that NATO would never move an inch east of Germany, and all of those promises and expectations that Russia had never came to fruition. What it turned out is that the West, and in particular the United States and Great Britain, were not just content for the Soviet Union to go away, but they wanted Russia to go away. And they never, never brought Russia back into the fold of the West, and in fact used the collapse of the Soviet Union to continue to undermine Russia, and one, that, one way that they did that is by continually intervening in the former Soviet republics, particularly Ukraine, by supporting various color revolutions, by supporting neo-Nazi groups there. And all of this came to a head in 2014 when the democratically elected president, Yanukovych, who was really trying to straddle the divide between the EU, the West, and Russia, was trying to keep a Ukraine neutral, which he believed was really the desire of the Ukrainian people. He was overthrown in a coup, an unconstitutional coup, in 2014, which the U.S. backed. 
And by the way, the president that the coup leader that succeeded uh, Yanukovych, uh, Poroshenko, admitted that this was an unconstitutional coup, by the way. Right. And the U.S. supported ultra-right-wing forces to take power in Ukraine in 2014. And they immediately began to antagonize the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, who live particularly in the East, and they outlawed the Russian language. There were some provocative acts like the burning of the uh, Odessa trade union building in which scores of mostly Russian-speaking people were killed in a burned alive in a fire set clearly by right-wing Ukrainian forces. And this led to regions of Ukraine, the Donetsk and Luhansk, to hold referendums to succeed from Ukraine. And those referendums happened. They voted to succeed. And the government in Kiev, with support of the West, with support of the United States, began to wage war against those two republics, against their own people. And that war was covered, not very much, but it was covered somewhat by the Western press, which at moments talked about how terrible the war was, that thousands of people were killed. And in the end, about 14,000 people were killed in that conflict between 2014 and 2022. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Most of them, by the way, fled into Russia. And this is really the backdrop to the conflict that we have now. And so when the press now, which you know shows incredible amnesia, tries to claim that this was an unprovoked war and this, you know, that began in February of 2022, we have to remember that that's not true. That in fact, instead of they say, oh, we're just celebrating or commemorating the first anniversary of this war. No, it's the ninth. And um, that essentially is the backdrop. Now, and, and just, you know, when we lead up to the February, what, 24th, 20, 2022, when Russia intervenes, the weekend before the intervention, there were over 2,000 ceasefire violations okay. between the Donbass and the government in Kiev. And tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops were amassing on the border of the Donbass to try to reach, take those areas by force. This is the events, the immediate events that led to the intervention by Russia in February of 2022. And by the way, when I talk about the 2000 ceasefire violations, these were figures given by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is a 57-member organization, which includes many Western European countries, which includes the United States, which is now being headed by a German. Okay, so this is not some pro-Moscow organization. Now, I guess it begs, you know, well, this is used wrongly, begs the question. That's really not the word. But it, of course, <laughs> raises the question, they're violating what ceasefire, right? Which is also interesting. Obviously, there's a war going on if there's a, if there's a ceasefire agreement. And the ceasefire agreements were, of course, set forth in the Minsk agreements from 2014 and 2015, which were unanimously agreed to by the UN Security Council, which were to end the conflict between the government in Kiev and their own people in the Donbass. And we've now learned from various leaders, including former Chancellor Angela Merkel, former French President Hollande, that the West never 
intended, right? Intended <laughs> on implementing to comply these. with those Minsk agreements, which were to, to to make peace in that area. So so that is all the backdrop for this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to me because, I mean, you just covered a lot of history really quickly, and there's a lot of things, a lot of different avenues I think we could go from there. It's just so, it's so blatant how it's presented as that it's just one day Putin wakes up and decides that he wants to start a war. That's the narrative that I guess we're expected to buy into broadly from a lot of the, the mainstream outlets. Meanwhile, one of my favorite pastimes is to go back and look at Guardian articles from the 2018, say, or 2014, that talk about the uh, the neo-Nazi problem, right? But those articles aren't coming out um, with any regularity right now. But just to your point about the amnesia, but we'll, I think we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the centrality of NATO in particular um, with this and the U.S.'s role within NATO and how that looms so large within the context of this broader project. I know we talked about NATO expansion, but what about um, NATO specifically with relation to Ukraine um, is causing Russia such consternation at this point? Right. So as I, you know, just to back up a little bit, as I mentioned, I think most honest people acknowledge this promise by James Baker to Gorbachev that NATO would not move an inch east of Germany if Gorbachev allowed the Berlin Wall to, to fall and, and for the East Bloc essentially to collapse, which Gorbachev did. But no sooner than that agreement was made and the Berlin, went down, Berlin Wall went down, did the U.S. begin or did NATO begin moving very far east <laughs> towards Russia, in fact, to the borders of Russia, right? Putting troops and, and, and even missiles uh, on the border of Russia, something the U.S. would never allow, right? It would never allow... Russia to have Warsaw Pact soldiers and missiles in Mexico, for example. Uh, and in fact, the last time this, the Soviet Union tried to do that in 1960. Cuban Missile Crisis, right? <laughs> yeah, we almost went to nuclear war over it. So in fact, what is happening now is being called a reverse Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. So the last shoe to drop was Ukraine. Ukraine had not was not a member yet of NATO. And, and, and Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. And it has a huge border with Russia. I think it's something like, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I want to say a thousand miles or so. It's a huge border. And open, open land, right? A lot of yeah. historical significance um, in terms of land invasions through that, what is now that border, right? For Russia. Right. So Russia's red line was, okay, you already got us surrounded. You've already violated this agreement with Gorbachev you know, in, in very gross ways, don't admit Ukraine to NATO. I mean, that, that would be the red line, right? And Russia's been making this clear for years. And in fact, William Burns, I think it was William Burns, the CIA head, who's, who acknowledged that this would be a red line. If NATO crossed this red line, Russia would have to respond. I mean, people understood this. I mean, even Kissinger said as much, didn't he? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> of all yeah, people. no, absolutely. But they refused the U.S., especially at the 11th hour when Russia was saying, look, if you don't say that Ukraine won't be part of NATO and if you don't stop Ukraine from attacking the Donbass, we're going to invade. The U.S. still did not give them that assurance. And that's what led to this crisis. So and then again, everyone knew that this was the red line. Again, the red line that, again, the U.S. would not allow to be crossed if the situation were reversed. And in fact, we have, in fact, 
the head of U.S. Southcom, uh, Laura Richardson, saying similar things, you know, that we're not going to allow China and Russia to have troops in Latin America and that sort of thing. You know, we are not going to put up with that. But Russia's got to put up with all that's happening in Ukraine, including, as you mentioned, and we'll get more into this, yes, the support for neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine, which is a very real thing that has been happening. And so this, in the end, NATO refused to give these assurances and the conflict happened. And now you asked about the U.S.'s role in NATO. I mean, I think that in terms of Europe, if they were left to their own devices, they would have dealt with Russia, right? I mean, let's face it, Angela Merkel begged Gorbachev for the Nord Stream pipeline, for Nord Stream 2. I mean, Germany was selling the excess gas, weren't they? Yeah, but they need it for their industries. Absolutely. Okay, they need it. They need it for energy. In fact, Western Europe is dependent on natural gas from Russia, even when it was the Soviet Union. Right? This is not a new thing. They need Russian natural gas, and so Merkel begged Putin for Nord Stream Two. And the reason why she had to beg is because Putin was like. I don't want to build this thing. And then the U.S. pressures you into stopping taking our gas and then we're screwed. And Merkel assured him, no, 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 we'll take your gas no matter what. Well, it turned out, of course, that Putin had a right to fear that, right, that, that the U.S. would not allow this. Biden said he wouldn't allow it. He said he would put an end to Nord Stream. The Nord Stream pipeline ends up being, of course, blown up. And then Various U.S. officials like Victoria Newland crowed about it being blown up and being, you know, what a, I forget, well, a hunk of junk or whatever she said. A hunk of metal at the, the bottom ocean, of the ocean. Bottom of the ocean. And, you know, now we have Seymour Hersh telling us what we all pretty much knew. It didn't take Lieutenant Colombo to tell us the U.S. <laughs> did it. So, yeah, that's where we're at. The point being that the U.S., is not operating in Western Europe or NATO for the benefit of Western Europe. They're operating for the benefit of themselves, and in many ways to the detriment of Western Europe. Again, I think if it was up to Western Europe, certainly countries like Germany and France would have found a way to deal with Russia. But it was the U.S. interference which, which really has prevented that, and much, again, to the detriment of Europe who will suffer greatly economically because of all this, which, by the way, I think is also the U.S. plan. Let's face it. Right. The, you know, under capitalism, countries have no, no permanent friends. They have only permanent interests, right? And so everyone's a competitor, and Germany's a huge competitor of the U.S. And the U.S. was cr quite content to wreck their economy and force Germany to be dependent on U.S. gas and oil. So and that's, that's where we find ourselves right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to a couple of things. One, just the long history of it speaks to it as a project um, that crosses party lines. I think they're faux party lines, especially when it comes to issues of imperialism, as we see, right? And then, you know, we have the Nord Stream um, and eliminating dependence on Russian natural gas. And then you also see things like BlackRock signing rebuilding deals with Zelensky, right? Selling off what remains, I guess, of some of the state-run assets um, that are really legacies of the USSR and Ukraine, right? So, I mean, you can see pretty nakedly what the financial and the material interests are for the U.S. in this in this overall project, I guess, right? I do want to move to um, some of your 
experiences on the ground. You know, we talked about Donbass and, you know, I think people should recognize that people in the Donbass, Eastern Ukraine in general, I mean, there's a lot of Russian speaking people, as you mentioned, right? And that there's some actual real history to that. I think a lot of that area was actually transferred when the USSR and Russia were part of, or when Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country as the USSR, because there was a lot of industry there, right? So it would make sense that a lot of, you know, these folks, their families, they can trace their lineage back to Russia. So I guess can, you know, being on the ground there, can you speak to, I guess, some of the contradictions between what you observed talking to people on the ground and the narrative that the U.S. media is putting forward with respect to these people? Yeah, well, first of all, I went to the Donetsk People's Republic, which has traditionally, you know, Donetsk City was a sister city of Pittsburgh. Yeah, I didn't know that. And that's because they're two steel cities. And in fact, both of their steel industries were created by by persons from Britain. So so uh, the U.S. steel industry was created by a Scotsman, Andrew Carnegie, and uh, Donetsk Cities was created by, or in Donetsk in general, their steel industry was created by a guy named John Hughes from Wales. So they have this very interesting kind of history of Pittsburgh and, and, and Donetsk. And as you said, Donetsk was the heartland industrial heartland of Russia. And in fact, it was also the heartland of the industrial working class that supported the Bolshevik revolution. It was very much very important place, a very important seat of the Bolshevik revolution in 1917. And as you said, it wasn't until later that that part of uh, what was Russia became part of Ukraine, right? And so the people in Donetsk feel by the way, a lot of them, and there was an article this morning, I want to say either in the New York Times or the New Yorker, one of those New York publications, that talked about a city in the Nets called New York. Okay. Kind of funny. It renamed itself after the collapse of the Soviet Union to New York, hoping it would be this, you know, opening, hey, we're open for business. Come and see New York. Oh, I did see that headline. It was about how they missed the USSR or something, right? right. I, have to, I have that on my list of read. I saw the headline. I was like, oh, this is interesting. But I didn't realize it was actually New York. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, what I found is, first of all, many of the people in Donetsk really do miss the Soviet Union, do see themselves today as Soviet peoples, more than even Russian or Ukrainian peoples. And when they say that, what they mean is that they believe in the ethos of the Soviet Union, which tried to unite all these diverse people all these diverse lands and regions and languages together, despite their differences, right? That it was this inclusive nation and society with differences, which, you know, differences which were actually allowed and cultivated, but which were united. And they believe that the government in Kiev in the West destroyed that idea of that sort of Soviet-like unity. And that the U.S. in particular was behind that, that they really supported elements in Ukraine to destroy that idea of unity. And what the U.S. promoted instead was this Ukrainian nationalism, which was racist and anti-Russian, including anti-Russian peoples living in Ukraine, right? And so people in Donetsk, a lot of them feel very strongly supportive of what was the Soviet Union and 
what that means a couple things. It means one, they don't they're not against Ukraine. Okay. They they don't they may be the victims of racism, but they don't return that racial hatred in return. They make that clear to, to me. But also they do feel an affinity with Russia as well, because it was because of the history and because of the Soviet Union. But they certainly feel that they've been done wrong by the government in Kiev that's existed at least back to 2014 and even further than that. And by and large, and again, I, I, I can say this with absolute comfort and certainty, they welcomed the Russian invasion. And in fact, had been pushing for that since 2014. And, uh, you know, life was returning to normal there in large part after the they had voted in a referendum in September of 2022 to become part of Russia. And what I witnessed were uh, streets filled with cars, people going to work, people going to restaurants, people going to shops, reconstruction being done, mostly by the Russians, by the way, and life returning to these places. And I was told, I, I wasn't there before the referendum, but what I was told was, this was new. This was happening post-referendum. And so people need to understand that. Whatever you think about Ru what Russia's doing and whatever you think they're doing, you know, to the West and to Kiev, people should know that the people in the Donbass at this point want to be part of Russia, you know. And the only people who are to blame for that are the government of Ukraine and the United States, who really put them in a position where they had no choice but to go back to Russia. And that is something people need to understand. No, I totally agree with that. And that brings up kind of another thing that we should analyze, I think. You know, I think we can all recognize at this point, you know, that this is a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, right? I mean, this assertion gets harder and harder to deny. It seems like a politician a day comes out and kind of says the quiet part out loud and characterizes it as such, right? Nevertheless, I still see like the liberals and the neocon types that are in favor of the war. They're always taking great pains to kind of describe this as a struggle for self-determination against Russian imperialism by the Ukrainian people broadly. Right. So, I mean, I think you're getting at it here, but I think it's important for us to grapple, especially in the U.S., with this idea of Russian imperialism. And can you speak to why, in your opinion, that characterization needs to be pushed back upon, especially by U.S. leftists, we'll say? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't see what Russia's doing there as imperial aggression. I see it as one self-defensive. I think they believed, and I think quite rightly, that given what was happening in the Donbass, if they didn't take the battle to Ukraine, the battle would have been taken to them within Russia's border. So I think they saw this as self-defensive, but also defensive of the people in the Donbass who clearly wanted them to invade. I mean, that has to be very clear. And by the way, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation wanted Russia to go in in 2014. I think, if anything, Russia has been very patient and has held off as long as they could to do this. I don't think the government in Moscow wanted this war. I think they felt that they had no choice. And I think when we talk about national sovereignty, that's an important issue. But I think what, you know, one, we have to say, what about the right of the self-determination of the people of the Donbass who voted in 2014 to leave Ukraine? And they clearly wanted to do that. And they were attacked for that. What about their right to self-determination? And I think, honestly, once Kiev began its war on Donbass, 
honestly, my view is they gave up the right to have the Donbass as part of Ukraine. They showed their hatred for those people. Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, even said they'd be living, the people of the Donbass would be living in their cellars for the rest of their lives, right? So they can't complain that Donbass left and that they're not coming back, right? This, if this war gets settled, it won't be with Donbass as part of Ukraine anymore. And the government in Kiev has no one to blame but themselves for that. And honestly, Ukraine is not, even in the West, is not an independent sovereign country. It is a fully a client state of the United States. It is corrupt. It is undemocratic. It's a rump state that the U.S. has transformed into this proxy country to go after Russia. So I think given that this idea, you know, some even my leftist friends will say, oh, what about Lenin's position on the national question? I, I don't think Lenin would view what's happening as some violation of that. I think the national question of Ukraine was violated by the United States a number of times after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but most grossly through the 2014 coup. And at that point, I think it's hard to talk about Ukraine as having some national sovereignty issue that needs to be protected. Again, especially when they start cannibalizing their own people. Yeah. And I mean, I guess just for me, you know, we mentioned that the U.S. looms in the background of all this. You know, when we talk about imperialism here in 2023, especially if we're living here in the U.S., there's one thing that we need to, I guess, focus our criticisms more so on than anything, right? And that's dealing with U.S. hegemony and its role in all this, especially from our position here. Talking about the history here, um, going back to 2014 and really beyond, but you know, I think it's well known that Ukraine has a neo-Nazi problem. And I think some of these neo-Nazis, as I understand, were kind of like the tip of the spear used by the Kiev government to run this conflict in, in the Donbass region, right? with the Azov Battalion being the most well-known manifestation. And I think it's important for folks listening to recognize that the U.S. has been funding these types. Um, you know, you mentioned Ukrainian nationalism as kind of like a weapon, um, but we've been funding these kind of groups since the 1950s with Project Aerodynamic, right? And on through. Really since the 1920s. With, with the Banderites, yeah. But it goes back a long time. But, you know, I, I see some things right now trying to kind of diminish or sweep under the rug um, this idea that these neo-Nazis are, are so prevalent. Um, I guess, can you speak a little bit to what their role was in the Donbass region and also what their role is within the government and the military of uh, Ukraine right now? Well, I think they're very significant, probably much more significant than their numbers, but they have a huge amount of influence in the government and have had since 2014. First of all, you mentioned the Azov Battalion, which is significant. And by the way, you know, they kept saying, oh, well, there's not that many people in the Azov Battalion. And yet, despite all the losses Ukraine has suffered, you continue to hear people in the Azov Battalion you know, being quoted. And, you know, uh, they're still, you know, they're still Coming very to much visit here. <laughs> Right. They don't seem to go away. And by the way, you know, the press seems to hard pressed to have a photo of, of any military personnel from Ukraine without some sort of Nazi emblem or something. <laughs> it's disgusting. And so it's, they're very significant. And, and again, I, there was a report, I'm forgetting who reported on it, but I, I've been writing about this since 2014. I forget which, uh, maybe it was Newsweek or one of these magazines that reported, there's 20 some groups like the Azov Battalion 
you know, so they're, they're not an isolated group. They have an incredible amount of control over the government. In fact, as the Gray Zone reported, when Zelensky was elected in 2019, he was elected on a peace platform to make yep. peace with Russia. And the neo-Nazis quickly came to him and said, if you make peace with Russia, we're going to kill you. And so he changed his tune very quickly. And so they had that type of power in Ukraine. And they were part of the troops that invaded the Donbass, that carried out massacres, rapes, arrested people. I talked to people who were held by the Azov Battalion and tortured. They're, they exist. And the people of the Donbass know they exist, know that they are out to destroy them. In fact, Donetsk at one point was called Stalina till 1961, till the anti, you know, de-Stalinization in 1961. And they have a saying, first Stalingrad, now Stalina, right? That is Stalingrad in 1943 buried the Nazis or began the end of the Nazis, that Donetsk would be the burial ground of the Nazis now, right? So they're very clear who they're fighting. And, you know, just to give an example how this idea that there's no neo-Nazis in Ukraine. John Conyer, when he was a congressman, sponsored a bill in the House of Representatives, which became law, which passed the Congress, was signed into law by Obama, which forbid the U.S. from arming neo-Nazis in the Ukraine. Okay, why do you need a bill that says you can't arm neo-Nazis in Ukraine if there's no neo-Nazis in Ukraine? And by the way, that bill ends up being repealed through an act of Congress, signed into law by Obama, which then allowed the U.S. to fund neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Why do you need to repeal a law that forbids you from arming neo-Nazis if there's no neo-Nazis? I don't know, Dan. It sounds like a coincidence to me. <laughs> yeah, this is just complete silliness. And, you know, you now have, of course, now, so we've all almost come to full circle where now the press hard pressed to say there's no, no neo-Nazis are basically just saying, okay, they're neo-Nazis, but they're good neo-Nazis. These are the good kind. And the liberal class seems to have gone along with this, that that, you know, it's fine to be a neo-Nazi if you're in Ukraine. And this is how terrible the discourse has become in this country. I mean, it's sickening to me. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, you hear about like the uh, the Wagner group right in Russia that gets thrown out as kind of like the well, you know, when you bring up the neo-Nazis, well, Russia has their own neo-Nazis. Right. And I guess my response is, well, my government isn't sending those neo-Nazis any money. And I don't know much yeah, about the Wagner group. Well, I, I don't the Wagner know much group. about them. but yeah. Yeah, They're not a neo-Nazi group. They are a private military contractor. And they're named after Wagner, the composer, who was a great composer, because they talk about being this orchestra that is able to, you know, engage in orchestrated military. They're not a Nazi group. Gotcha. Um, and again, this idea, the Russians defeated the Nazis. That's the other thing we have to remind people. The Soviet Union defeated the Nazis. They lost 27 pe million people defeating the Nazis. No one suffered more. No one did more to defeat the Nazis than the Soviet Union, which, of course, and most of those soldiers, the majority were Russians, right? The Russians don't love Nazis. Whatever you say about Putin or the Putin government, they're not Nazi lovers. Every May 9th, they celebrate defeating the Nazis. Every city in Russia has some sort of monument to defeating the Nazis. It's act, it, it, it makes me ill to hear this idea that somehow Russia's fascist or Nazi 
Say what you want about them, but that is not what they're about. In Donetsk City, I visited, for example, they had a concentration, Nazis had a concentration camp there during World War II. And they had, they had also the second largest, Donetsk City had the second largest mass grave of the Nazis. 75,000 people were thrown into this mass grave, many alive. And there's a monument to that in Donetsk City. And every city in Western Russia has some tale to tell like that. And so this idea that, oh, well, it's our neo-Nazis against their neo-Nazis is absurd. And that's why they are now, of course, the West is trying to um, rewrite history, to mm -hmm. try to claim, oh, it was the U.S. and U.K. who defeated Hitler, and they've forgotten the, the Soviet role in it. And, and that's necessary as part of this project, right? It, you have to say that, and you have to believe that, because if you believe the truth, then, it, of course, none of this makes sense of what you're being told, right? And, if, and again, we have to acknowledge that a lot of the people doing the killing for the Nazis in Ukraine were Ukrainians. Yeah, the Banderites, right, who they're kind right. of resuscitating now. Exactly. So, again, all, you know, basically we have to fight this Orwellian doublespeak and, and historical rewriting to just come to grips which, with what's happening in Ukraine. Agreed. No, thank you for that insight on all that. I guess I want to zoom out a little bit because we've been talking about what's going on specifically in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Um, but can we talk a little bit about how this conflict is impacting the rest of the world? You know, I think, you know, at home we're seeing inflation rise, right? And we're seeing the industrial disasters happen here and there's nothing that we can do about it, apparently, that we're just continue to funnel more and more money over there, right? So we're seeing that go on at home. But I guess just from a broad picture, what is this doing on the economic and the political scale? Because I think we're seeing economic impacts, but also political movings, you know, shiftings around the BRICS and how this is impacting kind of everything on a global scale. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, what's happened is that the sanctions leveled against Russia have not hurt Russia very much, but have hurt the West, in particularly Western Europe, because it's cut them off from the natural gas they need from Russia. So they, their economies have been devastated. The U.S. economy has been hurt as well, not, not, not as badly. But yes, as you say, there's rising inflation here as well. And so average people in these Western countries are being hurt by this crisis. We also, of course, various markets have been disrupted, including food markets going to the Middle East and, and Africa. And so this has hurt them greatly because they've had a hard time getting wheat from Russia and Ukraine. So that's some of the economic fallout, you know, but, but the geopolitical fallout is that essentially the world is now aligning against the West. It's now the West against everyone else. So while, you know, the U.S. will say, well, the whole world's against Russia. Well, no, it's not really not true. Really. <laughs> and when they say the world, they mean the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. That's who they mean. That's the West. Yeah. Africa, Latin America, and most of Asia including China and India, which right there you have a huge proportion of the world's population, are in Russia's camp. And why is that? Because the world is tired of the U.S. and NATO 
intervening at will in their countries. They're sick of it. And they are taking some glee at the fact that the West, someone is finally fighting them back. That is the truth of it. And we are seeing the emergence now of a multipolar world in which, you know, countries will not have to beg to the United States. And I think that that's a good thing. And I think most of the world thinks that's a good thing. It's going to cause suffering in the West. I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is a de-dollarization. The, the dollar is now losing preeminence. And, and again, the U.S. has no one to blame but themselves because they've cut off Russia and a number of other countries off from Western financial institutions and from trading in U.S. dollars, right? And so now they're going to trade in other things which means the dollar is not going to be the reserve currency of the world, which means the dollar is not going to be as valuable as it used to be, which means the U.S. is not going to be able to print money in a way that's going to allow it to just simply print its way out of problem. And sanctions won't be as effective. Right. But also means that our buying power will be less, you know, but this, this is going to be the result of all this, you know, but it's a necessary pill to swallow to end this bullying of the U.S. to the rest of the world, in truth. Yeah, I think when you look at the billions of people that are literally affected detrimentally by U.S. hegemony, I mean, again, like you said, you kind of have to swallow that. And as an anti-imperialist, you have to be in favor with it and work towards, you know, building something better out of that, right? But it, it is a necessary step. And, you know, you mentioned multipolarity, and that is, I think, the logical next step as the West's brutal imperialism continues to kind of deteriorate, right? And not to go down the China rabbit hole too much, but it's hard to see why places like Africa and Latin America, after years of colonialism and neocolonialism, wouldn't look at this block that's kind of forming up or with China as the center as an alternative, right? I mean, how many places are China and really Russia, for that matter, invading on, on a global scale, right? No, of course. China hasn't had a war since 1979. Right. And again, Russia is not intervening in other countries, with the one exception of Syria, is not intervening in any countries outside the former Soviet Union. Yes, they do get involved along their borders, but they don't go halfway around the world like the U.S. does to start trouble. Right. Right. And that's just something we have to acknowledge. Absolutely. So I guess, you know, speaking of China and the global sentiment broadly on this, let's just turn and I think we're going to be wrapping up here shortly. But, you know, let's turn to, I guess, you know, what we all ultimately want to see here, peace. So how is peace achieved in such a way that Russia's legitimate security concerns with respect to NATO in particular are addressed properly? How can that happen? And I guess, you know, if we can touch on it, I saw uh, the People's Republic of China coming forward with uh, peace proposals lately. And what role might China play in this process? Yeah, well, China can play a big role, of course, in moderating, me mediating a solution. I think a couple things are going to have to happen at this point. I think things could have been different nine months ago. But at this moment in time, I think two things are going to have to happen. One, NATO's going to have to agree that Ukraine will not become part of NATO. And two, the Donbass will have to be ceded to Russia. That's it. They're going to have to deal with that. And Crimea as well. That could end this conflict. Could end it tomorrow, I think. That's the realistic way to solve this. And it's a fair way to solve it. Because again, I, I think once, you know, Ukraine began brutalizing its own people in the Donbass, they lost any claim to that land and those people, right? That's done. 
And so that's how we get out of this. It's easy. And again, the U.S. and Western Europe should support that type of solution. And we could end this thing very quickly. What do you think the likelihood is at this point of the U.S. coming to the table um, as of today, March 7th? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly the U.S. has wanted this conflict. They want to weaken Russia. They want the conflict to continue to continue to weaken Russia. At the same time, if they sense that they're about to lose in a big way, they may want to find a solution out of this. Maybe. I think really, in the end, it's up to us as American citizens to pressure the U.S. government to go to the table and find that solution. I think people need to make it clear they want an end to this war. They want an end to military support for Ukraine. And they want the U.S. to support some type of peace settlement. I guess that's a segue into encouraging people to come to Washington for the March 18th rally that's going to happen, which has those very demands. Absolutely. You beat me to that punch, Dan. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So no, I mean, I think really that's as good a place as any to start wrapping up. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to plug that you're working on? Any events that you're going to be at that you want to let folks know about? Well, I, I do have this. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but as you mentioned, on March 11th, I am speaking at the PSL offices in uh, East Liberty on March 11th at 11 a.m. Would love for people to come out again if this comes out in time. Also, I have a new book, as you mentioned, Nicaragua, History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Would love for people to go buy it. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and you can buy it directly from Clarity Press. No, and just uh, for me personally, you know, I'm in the middle of your No More Wars oh. and also um, the plot to scapegoat Russia. So just, you know, a personal endorsement for your work. It's it's well worth reading and an important orientation and a dissident voice that you're not going to get a lot and it's important to have. So, you know, with that said... I think that's what we're going to try to do here at Pale, right? Sponsoring events and putting on these uh, podcasts to try to give people another source of information. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, keep a lookout. You know, we'll be posting these events on social media and probably doing some flyering in your neighborhood. So, um, you know, we're going to keep this going through the future. And, um, you know, we look forward to seeing you out at these things. So, Dan, thanks again for the time. And I look forward to working with you on the Pale Project, man. You too, Nick. Appreciate you. We'll talk to you soon.